because many of them saw themselves as political prisoners. They saw the legal system as illegitimate and they saw themselves as colonized subjects. So they, maybe they wanted amnesty from the entire legal system. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prisoners at Chippewa Correctional Facility in Michigan rebelled earlier this week after guards tased a prisoner into unconsciousness. On September 13th, prisoners seized an entire unit of the prison, housing 235 people. Reports indicate that while they held the unit, prisoners systematically devastated prison infrastructure, including doors, windows, computers, cameras, sinks, and equipment. Guards were able to retake the unit after five hours. Chippewa is close to Kinross Prison in the Upper Peninsula. The revolt conducted by Kinross prisoners in 2016 was one of the most dramatic events in that year's national prison strike. The following petition was released on September 7th, appealing for improved conditions in the Monroe County Jail. Based on interviews with recent prisoners who documented systemic failures to prevent COVID-19 transmission, the petition has led to a spate of local coverage of these terrifying conditions. The petition reads, We, the undersigned citizens of Monroe County, Indiana, are concerned that inadequate efforts to prevent the spread of COVID at the Monroe County Jail are putting employees and residents of the jail at risk of infection and thus also jeopardizing the health of our entire county. Jails are notorious incubators and amplifiers of infectious diseases, even more so than prisons. COVID is no exception. The constant churn of people in and out of jails makes infection from the virus far more likely for everyone inside them. Indeed, a study conducted this summer of the Cook County Jail in Chicago found that the jail alone was responsible for 16% of all documented COVID-19 cases in the entire state. Therefore, we urgently call on Sheriff Swain and the county commissioners to implement the following policies at the jail. 1. All employees, contract staff, and visitors must wear appropriate masks that cover the mouth and nose anytime they are in contact with anyone else, including fellow employees, jail residents, and members of the public. Staff have matching Monroe County neck gaiters. Scientists have found that these may be much less effective than even simple cotton masks. 2. All residents must wear masks when they are not in their assigned block. 3. Everyone residing in the jail must have access to hand soap available at all times, hot water working in all cells, cleaning supplies available every day, including paper towels and sanitizer for all cells. 4. Staff must wear masks in the quarantine block. Nurses must wear masks at all times, including when dispensing medications. 5. Everyone being released from jail must be tested before they depart. If they test positive and cannot easily self-isolate for their first 10 days home, then safe lodging should be offered during that period outside the jail. We also call upon Judges Houghton, Haseman, Decoff, and Fawcett in Monroe County to use confinement in the jail during the pandemic only for the most urgent cases. A reasonable standard in the midst of a pandemic is that only those people should be held at the jail who present a greater danger to themselves or others than they would if they were infected. Finally, we call on probation and parole officers to refrain from sending people to jail for technical violations. 
Sincerely yours, Concerned Residents of Monroe County. You can find a copy of that petition on our website. Last week marked the 49th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion. In this episode of KiteLine, we finish our conversation with Dr. Orasanmi Burton. Attica. A professor at American University, Dr. Burton introduces us to the diverse demands of the Attica rebels, as well as misconceptions about the demands and the rebellion itself. He also speaks to the legacy of Attica today and its continued role in prisoner struggles. Attica. You can hear the previous part of the conversation on our website, along with links to some of Burton's articles. Here he is. When people talk about the Attica demands, they're usually talking about the demands that were published in the New York Times that Russell G. Oswald agreed to, okay? Those demands, that document was produced in a back room in an office in Attica with Russell G. Oswald, Dunbar, a specific subset of the Attica observers, right? The more left radical Attica observers were excluded from that meeting. And it included a list of things that Oswald was already planning to do anyway. Because again, the Auburn rebellion happened in November and lasted I argue that it literally lasted for eight months, okay? Oswald became commissioner of the Department of Corrections in January, in the midst of the Auburn crisis, and very quickly realized that he needed to produce some concessions to prevent another Auburn from happening, which happened anyway, in the form of Attica, right? So the demands that get ratified by the state were not the demands that the Attica brothers articulated, okay? Now, even if they were the demands that the Attica brothers articulated, they didn't even follow through on most of those anyway. Okay, so that's one thing. So the other thing is that when we talk about demands and the demands that the Attica brothers actually did articulate, we're talking about various different kinds of demands that were articulated at different points in time. So following the sociology class, a group of Attica captives in A block formed the Attica Liberation Faction, and they articulated a whole series of demands. Most of those demands were a pr 
appropriated from a prison labor strike that took place in Folsom Prison in California. Most people don't know that the last paragraph of the Attica Liberation Faction demands were appropriated from the New York City jail rebellion demands. And part of the reason why that happened is because Herbert X. Blyden, who participated in New York City jail rebellions, was also part of the Attica Liberation Faction. Okay, so that's the first series of demands. And it's really, really, it's notable because of its baseline level of essentially asking for human rights. I mean, that's what's notable about that document. Aside from the fact that it indicates that the Attica rebels were in communication with other sites of struggle, the thing that's notable about it is how basic it is. Minimum wage, voting rights, rights to be politically active, um, a right to not be subjected to violence, a right to reading materials, the same thing that incarcerated people want right now. Okay, so that's that. Uh, as soon as the rebellion jumps off, the Attica brothers write some demands. The people who were elected as leaders, they write demands, okay? Those were the five immediate demands, and they're the demands that L.D. Barclay reads out in his famous speech where he says, we are men, we are not beasts, and we will not be beaten or driven as such. Now, most people who know something about Attica know about that line. What many people might not know is that before he does that, he ad-libs a little bit. And in that ad-lib, what he says is, these are our demands. This is what we want. This is not what someone wants for us. This is what we wrote down. Something like that. That's a paraphrase. But he says that, right? So when we talk about the Attica demands, we should be talking about the demands that they said that they actually wanted, not the demands that the state wrote for them. I don't remember all five of the immediate demands off the top of my head, but I believe the first one is amnesty. Now, this is another issue because the amnesty debate about whether or not the Attica brothers should get amnesty becomes a big deal later on. And it's described in very narrow terms in terms of amnesty for crimes committed during the rebellion. That's the state's version of amnesty that becomes a major point of debate on the you know, 11th, the 12th, and the 13th. But when you look at the initial demand for amnesty, it's very vague insofar as it's not clear what they're asking amnesty for, what kind of amnesty they're seeking, right? And that vague space of ambiguity, I think is really important because again, if you read this as a broader struggle for global decolonization at the site of the US prison, then it's possible that they're asking for amnesty for all their crimes because many of them saw themselves as political prisoners. They saw the legal system as illegitimate and they saw themselves as colonized subjects. So they, maybe they wanted amnesty from the entire legal system. So all this gets lost later on when people just focus on the state's interpretation of everything and don't take what the prisoners were saying seriously. So that was the first one. The second one was transport to a non-imperialist country. 
Everyone didn't want this demand. It was not a hegemonic demand. Some people thought it was ridiculous, but a lot of people did want it and they were serious about it. So we should take that seriously too. They also wanted, I believe, they wanted the prison administration to take the internal walls of Attica down, to stop essentially running it as four separate prisons and just take those internal walls down. And they volunteered to do that labor themselves. So that's three of the demands that they articulated in their own terms without attempting to sort of appeal to, you know, the rationality of the state, appeal to pragmatism. Like that was them saying, this is what we actually want. One of the first observers to come in to the prison was uh, Herman Schwartz, who was a lawyer who had supported some of them at Auburn. He came in and they showed him their demands on a sheet of paper. He looked at them and said, these are unrealistic. And then that was kind of it, you know, he left. And when he came back with more observers, they had added more demands and included some reasonable demands. But again, ultimately what ends up being ratified by the state, even though they don't actually follow through on most of it, what ends up being ratified is a document that has a totally different point of origin. The other thing I just want to say about demands is that nearly 1,300 people were in the yard at Attica, right? And there's multiple things going on at once. There are overlapping demands, and there are demands that are in tension with each other, and there are different groups who are pushing for different things. And so I think it's important that we read demands in a much more kind of a, a holistic and complicated way than has been typically understood. The rebellion ended with a massacre led by the state, authorized by Nelson G. Rockefeller, the governor of New York at the time, as well as Richard Nixon, the president at the time. It was the bloodiest single day encounter on the US settler colony since the Wounded Knee Massacre, right? So again, if we're thinking about resonances of racial slavery, settler colonialism, and warfare, there you have it right there, okay? The level of violence gives you an indication of how significant the rebellion was in the eyes of the state. Essentially, they let loose a configuration of National Guardsmen, state troopers, uh, and prison guards, and they let them go in there with all forms of killing weaponry, and they had no plan. Uh, I mean, they had a plan, but I think this was sort of, for them, this was new territory. They didn't have a blueprint for how to defeat this kind of insurgency within a prison, right? They didn't have plans for that. Um, so they had to kind of develop one. And one of the people, several of the people who were involved had been involved in quelling urban insurgencies. And by 1971, the state had a very effective plan for defeating urban insurgencies because there had been so many throughout the 60s. 
they didn't have really a plan for defeating this kind of prison insurgency. And I think that because of that, we need to think about the massacre as an experiment by the state in political violence, right? I think that the absence of a plan was part of the plan. They had to have known that hostages were going to die. And they later tried to blame the deaths of the hostages on the prisoners. So they probably assumed that the prisoners were going to kill hostages, which they didn't, except for um, the first person who, who, who died, who they beat up in um, Times Square on the first day. He eventually died, but that wasn't an intentional assassination. They probably assumed that the prisoners were going to assassinate some hostages, but they didn't actually do that. But they also probably assumed that they were going to kill some hostages through friendly fire. They had to have, right? Because they flooded, they got a helicopter, a military helicopter, flooded the yard with gas, CS gas, that was deemed a violation of the Geneva Convention, right? So it was actually illegal to use that gas in foreign theaters of war at that time. They dropped, they flooded the yard with this gas which immediately incapacitated almost everyone in the yard. It also made it so that the people who led the siege, the National Guardsmen who led the siege, couldn't see anything in the yard. So death to the hostages and the prisoners was built into the very design of the plan because what they did was they just shot into the yard indiscriminately in the midst of all of this gas where people were already incapacitated and they couldn't see. So this wasn't an accident that, you know, 39 people died. I think it was 29 prisoners and 10 guards. They killed 10 of their own guards. That was not, uh, you know, just an accident. It was an example of the kind of violence that the state enacts, irrespective of who's on what side when it feels threatened by a radical challenge. So I think they fired 2,000 rounds of ammunition. It might be more, I can't remember. So 39 people were killed, hundreds more were maimed and paralyzed. Following the killing, there was a protracted campaign of torture and brutality that continued within Attica and elsewhere for an unknown amount of time. I mean, and, and you know what? It is horrifying. And one of the other messages that people have yet to internalize is that those who survived and others who were not there, but who were, who saw themselves as being in alliance with the Attica brothers, including Huey P. Newton, made the point that people who understand themselves to be loyal to the state you know, uh, white people who live in these prison towns, who survive off, who, who economically depend on the prisons or people who, you know, have this notion in their heads that like everyone who's in prison deserves to be, you know, brutally punished. People like um, Huey P. Newton and several of the Attica brothers, um, someone named Shireen Justice, they made the point that, look, this shows you that regardless of how loyal you are to the state, that your life is expendable just like ours. That this should actually teach you that the state itself is a violent apparatus 
and that even though most of the time that violence is directed against black people people of color poor people that in moments of crisis your life will become just as expendable as ours that was the message that a lot of them were putting out at the time and some of the guards even recognized this right there's a i have a quote from one guard who said i don't remember signing up to say that my life was expendable i was a loyal guard and they treated us like we were expendable so it's a moment of political education around the the role of violence in the maintenance of state power so yeah it is horrifying you know when you listen to the nixon tapes Nixon's terrified of Attica. He, he, he thinks this is an instance of, in fact, he proved my point because he talks about Attica as being part of, what does he call it? The black, the global black revolution, right? And yeah, yeah, his fear is that if black folks were to rise up, they would reciprocate the forms of violence that they had been subjected to for the past 400 years. And I mean, it's a rational fear, but it's just not what happened, right? I mean, in Attica, it's amazing how much restraint the Attica rebels had. And it's also amazing what happened to them after the fact, right? The, the, the intense way they were brutalized by the guards for transgressing the uh, boundaries and the strictures of power. They were brutally tortured and killed. But when the prisoners had the power, they exercised remarkable restraint in an effort to publicly demonstrate that there were other ways that people could exercise power over their captives. That message didn't really reach the people who had the power to do something about it. One thing that we can say for sure is that Attica continues to inspire people who are engaged in, well, see, it's, it's hard, man, because, you know, Attica was multiple scenes and it's not always clear to me what people are commemorating when they're talking about Attica. Like for some people, Attica is important because of how violent it's, conclusion was and in that way it's like you know attic is important because it shows us how violent the state is i mean I, I think that's important but i don't think that's why the national prison strike was organized by incarcerated people to coincide with the death of george jackson and attica you know i don't think that they are citing attica to say Hey y'all, look how violent the state is. Although I, you know, that's part of it. I think the resonance is with the sort of like the unspoken demands that I mentioned earlier, the level of organization, the Attica as a possibility, Attica as a continuing struggle that actually wasn't defeated by that violence. I mean, that's kind of like the message, right? They, the state enacted this horrific orgy of violence and yet there are people to this day who continue to struggle in the name of Attica, right? So in that way, it attests to the enduring resonance of 
and the enduring potential of this kind of self-organization and, and radical struggle. In terms of how it was perceived, it's tough because it was on the cusp of a profound, you know, 1971 is when Attica happened, right? I mean, it's on the cusp of these profound shifts in US um, political culture and an intensification of tough on crime rhetoric and intensification of neoliberal economic policies, which defund and divest from uh, public infrastructure a retreat of the black middle class into uh, increasingly into sort of like enclaves where they see themselves as somehow different from the class or category of person that would end up in prison, right? So you see that transformation um, at the same time that you see Attica as, you know, a kind of a flashpoint for people who are continuing to engage in in, in radical forms of struggle. So it has a contradictory legacy. Don't allow your understanding of the event to be defined by the prison, right? I mean, that's like, that's what I'm trying to help us get away from. Like, what would happen if we understood Attica through the lens of people who engaged in it and understood themselves to be engaged in revolutionary struggle. And this is the precise way of looking at it that the state has attempted to incarcerate. They've attempted to incarcerate a particular way of seeing Attica. And I think that a lot of the analysis and historiography about Attica has actually perpetuated this very narrow mode of analyzing Attica as a struggle for rights within prisons. Now rights within prisons are important and many, if not all of the Attica brothers wanted an expansion of their capacities of uh, relief from different forms of violence and deprivation within prisons. That's certainly, that was certainly very important to them, but that's not all they were asking for. And we can't allow our memory of the event and we can't allow our own sort of misgivings, discomfort, fear around the, the supposed irrationality of the more expansive demands to incarcerate our understanding of the event itself. And I think that's what's happened. And, you know, part of what I'm trying to do, you know, in this era where everyone's talking about abolition, so much of what people are talking about is, you know, the abolitionist imagination. And Attica is a moment of actual abolitionist imagination that is being carried out through this self-activity of incarcerated people. And yet we don't have any language really to describe that or to understand that. So I think, you know, just giving people permission to refuse the terms that have been imposed upon us is what I would invite all of us to do and sort of search for what's happening at the edges of, of rationality and at the edges of the state's vocabulary. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. 
Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.